So last week we finished Isaiah 54, so we'll launch off to 55 tonight. And one of the things that is somewhat difficult, as we've said many times before, is figuring out who's being addressed. And I'm going to back up to 54.11. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundation with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of carbuncles and all your walls of precious stone. All your children should be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. That to me is Israel. That to me is new heaven and new earth territory because it tracks with Revelation 21 where the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven. So when we get to 55, I am going to suggest that we are talking about the same addressee because I don't see any change in who's being spoken to. So in 55, then, we have come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk, come without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Now, I am thinking that that's Israel in exile. Because remember, one of the things that God says back in the Torah is if you don't walk according to the covenant, your labor is going to basically be futile. In other words, you're going to go out with lots of seed, but you're going to come back with very little harvest. Those kinds of things. So the idea here, at least to me, is first off, why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your labor for what does not satisfy? It could be taken as frivolous, like you give a kid 50 cents or whatever it is price nowadays, and instead of buying something wholesome to eat, he goes and buys a triple-coated sugar bomb. It could be that meaning, but I tend to think that the idea here is your labor is not doing you any good. You're laboring in vain or your labor is futile. So the comment was uh, that This business of come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. The reason I don't think that it is reflective of the incident of the woman at the well with Yeshua, where he tells her that she should come to him for living water so that she would not thirst again, is I think we're talking about exile. And the idea here of no money, in other words, being able to get water, wine, milk, without any money, indicates to me that God is in the process of redeeming his people, and when they are redeemed, that he will provide their needs. But I don't get the same impression with the woman at the well, which is the waters of eternal life. And the comment was in verse 2, why are you spending your money for that which is not bread? Your comment is that they are, in fact, buying natural bread, but what they really want is the bread of heaven. I'm not arguing with you very strongly, but as I say, in the context of Israel being in exile, Israel being oppressed, for example, I would go back 
to the bricks without straw incident where they are under foreign domination. They're enslaved and in exile and their work is futile. When we talked about this going through Exodus, a slave whose work is productive may not enjoy being a slave but he still gets some satisfaction out of producing something with his labor. In the case of bricks without straw, the problem there is he has to expend a whole lot of labor for nothing, and it's make work. And the example that I used, some Russian was in prison, and he was given a crank to turn, and he imagined what was on the other end of the crank. Perhaps he was pumping water for people to drink, or perhaps he was grinding grain, or he didn't know what was on the other end, but he imagined that he was doing something useful. And when he was liberated, he went to the other end of the crank and found out that it was connected to nothing. He wasn't accomplishing anything. That did more to harm his spirit than all of the years of hard captivity. This idea that he hadn't accomplished anything so I'm not arguing with very hard. Your interpretation is perfectly reasonable. In the light of bringing exiles back, I'm seeing it more as God making their labors productive. Let's continue reading, and I'll show you why I have my opinion. So let's go down to verse 2 now. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. What I am getting here is in exile, in slavery, and so forth, they're expending labor, they aren't getting the best rations, and they're wasting their labor. And what he's saying is, come back to me, and I will delight you with rich food, which takes me back to the blessings in Deuteronomy for following the covenant. And then he talks about, I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. So we're going back here to the Davidic covenant, which is in Second Samuel, and that starts in chapter 7. So if you go back to 2 Samuel 7, this is Nathan, the prophet, speaking to David on the occasion when David wants to build the temple. Nathan gets a vision from God, and he reports that vision by way of saying that, no, you're not going to be the one who gets to build the temple, but I am going to make a covenant with you. So I'm picking it up in 2 Samuel 7.11. The Lord declares to you that he, the Lord, will establish a house for you. When your days are done and you lie with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you, one of your own house, and I will establish his kingship. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his royal throne forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he does wrong, I will chasten him with the rod of men and the affliction of mortals. But I will never withdraw my favor from him as I withdrew it from Saul, whom I removed to make room for you. Your house and your kingship shall ever be secure before you. 
your throne shall be established forever. What I see in Isaiah 55, where in verse 3 it says, Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. But we know that in the natural, David's kingdom failed. Because at the Babylonian exile, the Davidic line ceased being regal. We also know that Yeshua is of the line of David. So I am seeing in the Messiahship and the kingship of Yeshua the fulfillment of the promise that God makes to David back in 2 Samuel. So your natural offspring are eventually going to go astray and I'm going to chastise them with the rod of men and the affliction of mortals. That would be the Babylonians who took them into exile. When they came back from exile, the Davidic kingdom was not reestablished. And so what I'm seeing then is the fulfillment of this promise is Yeshua. So when we come back to Isaiah 55, remember I said at the end of 54, what we were talking about was Revelation territory where Yeshua does reign over, or he's king over the place, and David then sits on the throne. And in Ezekiel's temple, it says that David will be the king again. And I personally believe that that is red-headed David raised from the dead and sitting on the throne. So I see this as new heaven and new earth territory or millennial kingdom possibly also, but certainly that, where the exiles are. Remember back up in 53 and 54, God says, you won't be afraid of me anymore. And so all of this is the restoration of Israel, new covenant territory where the circumcision of the heart has taken place and Israel is walking in accordance with God's word. So what I'm suggesting here is Isaiah 55 verses 1 through 3 or a call to Israel in exile to come back. And what he's telling them is when they do come back, this will be the blessing. Verse 4, Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you, shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. I have no idea what that means. My best guess is it's talking about a call to the Gentiles by the Messiah. Could be Ephraim in exile, could be the Gentiles. The grammar is what's throwing me. You have sort of a non sequitur in the grammar. I'm not sure what to do with it. And I would pigeonhole it, if you will, in the Messiah reaching out to the nations would be the only thing that I can come up with. Verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now, Isaiah 56 is explicitly a reach out to the nations. So when we get down to Isaiah 56, 
it will be a reach to the nations. I think this is still Israel. Now, whether it's Israel and Judah or Judah or what, I don't know. But the point he's saying here is, if you remember in the book of Hebrews, where it's talking about entering his rest while it's still called today, I'll pick it up at the beginning of Hebrews 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message that they heard did not benefit them because they were not united in faith with those who listened. And them is the generation that died in the wilderness. The sin of the spies, so everybody over 20 years old in the wilderness died in the wilderness. So that's the them. Verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his work. And again in the passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today saying through David, so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So what he's saying in Isaiah is there is a time when the call of the Lord is available. But at some point, the gates will be closed. And Yeshua says the same thing. Remember, he says that at some point the gates are going to close and there's going to be people outside of the gate that are going to be banging on the door asking me to let them in. And I'm going to say, sorry, the door's closed. I never knew you. It's a parable of the wise virgins. There are several parables that Yeshua gives that says at some point the doors close. And if you're not in when those doors close, you are outside. So back here in Isaiah, in verse 6, 55, 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. In other words, there is a time when the Lord will listen to people who are calling on his name, which implies that there is a time when he will not listen, which is what Yeshua says, which is what I think Paul wrote Hebrews, what Paul is saying in Hebrews. The door is open, if you will. Enter it now. Do not depend upon it being open at some time in the future because at some time in the future it will be closed. Back here to verse 6. So seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth's, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And that takes me to the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. You all remember the parable of the laborers, where a guy needs help in the vineyard or help with the harvest. And so he goes out and he scoops up some day laborers and sets them to work and agrees to pay them a denarius for the day. And midday things aren't going as fast as he wants so he goes out and he gets some more guys and brings them in and sets them to work and then at the end of the day he goes out and gets yet some more guys and brings them in and sets them to work so at the end of the day when the harvest is all in he gets all of the laborers and he gives each of them the same wages 
And of course, the ones that have been working all day are grumpy because, wait a minute, we worked all day. This guy only worked for an hour and you're giving him the same wages you're giving me. And what the master says, Yeshua says, is it's my money. If I want to be generous with it, what is that to you? I have given you what you have contracted for. That says to me, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. So in the context of seeking the Lord while he may be found and the wicked coming to him so he will abundantly pardon, this speaks to me of somebody who has lived wickedly and changes his ways and comes to the Lord and is pardoned. And those of us who have been really good of all of our lives look at this guy that sort of scoots in at the last minute and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. My reward should be greater than his reward because I've been doing it all my life. And what God says is, my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I'm suggesting that's what's going on, where there's an open time, seek the Lord while you be found, and in that process, forgiveness is available, and the way forgiveness is extended is not going to be something that makes sense to all people. Verse 10, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread for the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's faith is carried on his words. Words are like the thumb drive that carries the information. And so when God speaks, things happen. And what happens when God speaks is his word accomplishes what he wants to have it accomplish, whatever that is. He does not speak his words in vain, and you can count on the word of the Lord accomplishing that for which he has sent it, which is a great comfort because lots of people read scripture and say, you believe that stuff? And the answer is yes, I do. And... Yes, I do believe that his word will accomplish the purpose for which he sent it, but I am not necessarily privy to what his purpose is. So going back to our laborers in the vineyard, just because it doesn't look to me like he is doing it the way I would do it doesn't mean that he's not doing it the way he would have it done. Certainly by definition, since he's God, what he wants is right. That's a true thing. But that doesn't mean that what we want isn't right. It just may not be the best in context. The laborers in the field, for example, had sort of legitimate beef. I mean, they had worked all day, and they weren't being paid at the same rate as everybody else. And what Yeshua does is turns around and says, wait a minute, it's my money. And if I want to be generous with it, what is it to you? So it isn't that they didn't have some reason to be grumpy. It's just that their perspective on it was not his perspective. All right, onward. So I'm in Isaiah 55, starting with 12. For you shall go out with joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. So I am seeing this as 
the restoration of all things. So now down to Isaiah 56. And here we actually explicitly go out for the Gentiles. So thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing evil. Remember, we have just said up above in 55 verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. And he said, let the wicked forsake his ways and so forth, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. So here it says, hang in there doing good and keep the Sabbath. So down to verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. By the way, this is the beginning of a chiasm, for those of you who are into chiasms. So let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And of course, the idea of a eunuch is a eunuch doesn't have children. A eunuch is a dead end. And what God is saying to the eunuch who keeps his Sabbath and does the things that the covenant says, he will provide him an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. In other words, he will not be a dead end. And then verse 6, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So you have a chiasm there. Foreigners, foreigners, then eunuchs and eunuchs. This leads me to believe that what has come before is getting Israel straightened out. Israel gets redeemed. New covenant gets put into effect, which is to say the circumcision of the heart. There's a promise made to Israel that just as in the days of Noah, God promised not to destroy the place with a flood, in the same way he promises never to be angry with his people again. So this to me is new covenant space, end time space, however you want to call it. And once we get Israel straightened out so that they can be a nation of priests like God intended them to be, at that point he will turn around and send them out to the nations to do what they were originally designed to do. And so all of this up until 56 sounds to me like the process of getting Israel into the place where God originally took them to be, a nation of priests. And then we turn around and go out to the nations, and the nations then come in. So in Isaiah 52, 11 and 12, where it says, Depart, depart, go out from here, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord, for you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel shall be your rear guard. 
as we said at the time when we were there, that feels to me like Israel is being sent out to gather in the nations. So now back to 56, where we have the gathering in of the Gentiles, and we have provision of a name for the eunuchs, and I am regarding the eunuchs as those who have no hope. Remember in Ephesians, it says, you Gentiles who are once far off, strangers to the covenant, alien to the promise, without hope. Someone without hope in this sense would strike me as a eunuch, which is someone who is without hope and a dead end. And so what he's saying to the nations and to those without hope is that he will give them hope. And the other thing is emphasis on the Sabbath. And as you all know, the Sabbath has not been changed. In fact, most of Christianity up until recently didn't call Sunday the Sabbath. They called it the Lord's Day. And it was different than the Sabbath. The Sabbath is Saturday, always has been. And the Catholic Church acknowledges that and everything else. You know, one of the things that annoys me is not the right word because I'm not annoyed, bothers me about the Sunday church is they pick and choose what they're going to grab hold of. So they grab hold of things that are clearly meant for Israel and say that that now is for the church. They look at passages like this where God emphasizes that it's a Sabbath that's important and they don't follow that. I'm not bothered. That's not right. They're really the right word. I understand it. I just don't think it's correct. God says what he means, and he means what he says. So these I will bring to my holy mountain, which is the foreigner and the eunuch. And for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And of course, Yeshua quotes that when he overturns the tables in the temple during Holy Week. And then verse 8 The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. And so again, I see a lot of this has been talking about the mechanics and the results and the reasons for gathering Israel. This is the assurance that it isn't just Israel. There are more people coming in. Of course, it's all over the scripture. It's not just here. All the way down to verse 9. All you beasts of the field come to devour. All you beasts of the forest. His watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark. Dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way each one to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine, let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. At least according to the note here, that is talking about the leaders of Israel who should be shepherds of the flock and instead are fattening themselves on the flock. So, What we had, if you will, back in 55 was gathering of Israel. Then you have gathering of the Gentiles. And now we're back to, this is why you're in exile. And one of the things that I find interesting in 56.12, Come, they say, let me get wine, let us fill ourselves with strong drink, 
And tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. What that says is they have no expectation that the Lord is going to fulfill his promises. Yesterday was like today, will be like tomorrow. We don't have to live in the expectation of, in this case, the regathering, or in our case, the return of the Lord. In fact, one of the parables that we'll read this week on Shabbat has to do with the master going away and leaving his goods in the hands of servants and not finding them doing what he wants to have them do when he comes back. It's all over the Gospels. I'm going away for a time, which is to say I am going to be crucified, I'm going to die, I'm going to be raised from the dead, and I'm going into the overhead for, at this point, 2,000 years. And I'm leaving you folks to take care of things while I'm gone. And I'm giving you instructions on what I want you to do while I'm gone. And what I really don't want to do is come back and find you living riotously, getting drunk, beating your fellow servants, not taking care of things, because if I come back and I find that that's going on, I'm going to be grumpy. And you're not going to be happy when I'm grumpy. So this here in verse 12 is a very human reaction to long absence of the Lord. You sort of get complacent. And you think, today's just going to be like tomorrow. So I might just as well do what I want to do because nothing is happening. And what Yeshua says and what God says over and over again is that's not the case. At some point, this is going to be over. The trumpet's going to sound. And what I want to do is I want to find you doing what I told you to do when I left. If I don't, I'm going to be chapped. And the watchdogs... Those who are supposed to be watching out for the flock. We're talking about the shepherds who are supposed to be caring for the flock. And what we're finding out is those watchdogs and those shepherds are not doing what they are supposed to be doing. Instead, they are living richly, parenthesis, off of the flock. And they are not operating as if they expect the master to return. Shut